Good morning. Uh, my name, that was, you guys did that better than the 9 a.m. service. Uh, my name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you, especially if you're new. We, we are in the middle of a sermon series looking at the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. Joseph is a pretty key character. So if you can access a Bible, please turn with me to that Old Testament reading from Genesis chapter 44, right near the end of the first book of the Bible. And I'm going to start us off with a prayer. Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. We need you, Lord. Come and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, have you noticed that the plots of virtually every Disney kids movie you've ever seen hinges on the same tragic event? Have you noticed the death of a parent? That's right. Think about it. Cinderella, Snow White, The Lion King, Frozen, Tangled, Flippin' Bambi. So the, so the question is, why? why? Why do you think screenwriters can sit around in a room and justify building a plot line of a children's movie around the death of a parent? Well, because it sets up the main character, Simba, Cinderella, Elsa, to carve out their own identity in the world, to make up their minds about whether the ways of their fathers and mothers is also going to be their way. Now, my house, we have finally moved on from the Frozen soundtrack. Like, finally. Like, for me, Let It Go was no longer a lyric. It was a cry for mercy welling up <laughs> in the depths of my soul. And instead, we've turned to Moana, which I just learned after the 9 a.m. was apparently composed by the same guy that did Hamilton, which is, uh, so, so there you go. Uh, We've been listening to the Moana soundtrack, and here's the thing. I'm the one who's been putting it on. I'm the one singing it in the shower. And Moana is no different than these other Disney films. It's about a girl who's out to make up her mind about whether the ways of her ancestors are also going to be her way. Whether the ways of her father and mother are also going to be her way. Think about, if you, I'm not going to ruin anything. But think about the song the Voyagers sing in the movie. You know, oh, hey, oh, I'm not going to. But they go, we tell the stories of our elders in a never-ending chain. You know that, right. The story of our elders is our story, too. That's, that's the message of the film. But that's also, that's also the tension in the story, right? Moana sees that the story of her elders is not, at the moment, her story. Think of the song she sings when she discovers her family history, right? I love my, this is the one you all sing in the shower. You all know you do. I love my island, but I'm, I'm meant to love the sea. I'm the daughter of a village chief. I'm descended from voyagers. At its core, Moana is the story of this girl bringing her father's story back into conformity 
with the greater family history from which he's veered. And by going the right way, where her father went wrong, Moana restores her people to their true identity and in so doing, get this, redeems her father too. In Genesis 44, our reading today, the story of Moana plays out in the family of Israel. As one of Jacob's sons goes right where he had gone wrong. And in so doing, that son not only restores his brothers to their true identity, he even redeems his father Jacob, the man whose waywardness from God led the whole family down this dark alley in the first place. It's the obedience of this son which saves the whole family, including Jacob. It's the climax that we've been waiting for since Joseph came on the scene in chapter 37, right? I mean, this is, we've been tiptoeing here through this whole sermon series. What should come as a surprise, though, is that the son who achieves all of this, the hero of the climactic scene of the book of Genesis, is not Joseph. It's Judah. Remember where we left off last week? By the way, we did skip chapter 43. You're not going crazy. Uh, We left off at the end of chapter 42 last week. The brothers have returned from a visit to Egypt. They went to get grain for the famine. And while they're there, they meet Joseph. But they couldn't recognize him, right? Decades have passed. He looks different. He's super buff. He's shaved. He looks Egyptian. And when this unrecognizable Egyptian accuses them of being spies, the brothers are eager to appear forthcoming. Right? Wouldn't you be? So they point out that they have an elderly father and a younger brother back home. Like, we're, to, we're just your garden variety family, right? We have, we have an elderly father. We've got a younger brother. You don't need to worry about us. And as, as if he doesn't really believe them, Joseph holds one of his brothers, Simeon, hostage until the brothers bring back Benjamin so that Joseph can see his only full brother, Jacob's only other son by Rachel, who, by the way, remember, Jacob has taken on concubines and wives, right? It's not, he's, he's departed from God's design in the garden. And this has broken his family. Rachel is the only one of his wives and concubines he ever really regarded as his wife. So Joseph wants to see Benjamin. At first, Jacob is totally against sending Benjamin, right? That's where we finished off last week. But a little bit of hunger has softened his resolve, and he orders his sons. This is right at the beginning of chapter 43, so we're going to go back in time just a little bit. He orders his sons, chapter 43, verse 2, go again, go to Egypt, buy us a little food. Well, brothers aren't going anywhere without Benjamin, right? The, they know that if they show up without Benjamin, they've been threatened with, with death. So who's supposed to convince Jacob of that? Reuben is the eldest, but he slept with one of Jacob's concubines, Bilhah, and he's had the asinine idea anyway that if he loses Benjamin, Jacob should kill two of his sons, not the brightest bulb in the drawer, so he's out. Then there's Simeon, the secondborn, who's in an Egyptian prison cell. Not going to be him. Then there's Levi, the thirdborn, who's been on Jacob's bad side ever since he and Simeon engineered this bloodbath, like a Tarantino-style proper bloodbath at Shechem back in chapter 43. So it's not going to be him either. 
So it falls to the fourth born, Judah, the brother whose bright idea it was to sell Joseph to slavery in the first place. It falls to him to take the lead. And this is verse 3 of chapter 43. But Judah said to him, to Jacob, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And of course, Jacob skulks and he stalls and he complains that they shouldn't have mentioned Benjamin in the first place. But Judah presses on. And here's the deal. This time, the text has Judah addressing his father Jacob by his God-given name, Israel. And this is important. It's a hint that the conversation which is about to happen, doesn't just concern a father and a son. It concerns the whole family of Israel, from Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 to this moment. What the narrator wants on your mind right now is the story of God's covenant people. And the reason he wants it there is because whatever Judah is about to do, it's going to bring about a major turn in that story. So Judah steps up to the plate. This is verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, Benjamin, send Benjamin with me and we'll arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we, the least of these, right, bottom of the totem pole, and you and the most precious of all, our little ones. Now, remember, we're not just dealing with Jacob, but with Israel. It's a bit like the difference between calling a man Donald one minute and Mr. President The next, one is the name of a person. The other is the name of a person in office. It's a hint, you see, that the conversation uh, which is about to follow is going to be laced with some pretty dark family history. And it is. The exchange between Judah and Jacob is virtually nothing but allusions to Jacob's earlier life. Judah is perhaps unwittingly jogging Jacob's memory about cheating his brother Esau out of his birthright, being sent away by his mother who feared that his older brother might murder him, serving for years and years under his uncle who takes advantage of him and deceives him, and ultimately of Jacob's own conversion story. That's all here. You see, these allusions all show that whatever Judah is getting himself into, it's gonna change the story of this whole family, and especially of his father. It sets Judah up to do over. He, the family of Israel is gonna get a do-over, right? It sets Judah up to do over. If you want a $10 word, to recapitulate, to redo The story of Israel, it hints that Judah, like Moana, might just be the one who goes right where his father had gone wrong. So Jacob caves and Judah leads uh, leads the caravan of brothers, including Benjamin, back to Egypt. And there they meet Joseph and their fears are allayed. They're welcomed into his court, and they feast with him. And they even marvel because Joseph seats them by their birth order, and for one hangover-inducing night, everything seems right with the world. And then morning comes, and Joseph, for the second time, sets up his brothers. He orders the steward to fill the men's sacks with silver, just like before, 
but this time to plant his own silver cup in Benjamin's bag as well. Joseph apparently wants to test his brothers. What are these sons of Leah going to do with the only remaining son of Rachel? Would they repeat what they'd done decades before, right? Would they try to kill him? Would these ten wicked brothers leave behind a son of Rachel and return to their father with silver? What are they going to do? Well, what do the brothers do when the steward overtakes them, right? Now we're back in our reading for today, okay? Flip the page, Genesis 44. This is verse 7. They throw down their sacks. They stop their donkeys. They jump down. This is solidarity. Speaking as one man, they say, verse 9, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. So it's beginning to look like on Judah's watch, the brothers are on a much different page than they had been decades ago. They don't abandon Benjamin. In fact, when the cup is found in Benjamin's bag, they do what Jacob did when he heard the news of Joseph's demise. This is verse 13. They tear their clothes. They mourn. They display the love of the father for his beloved son. And this is key, who is not one of them. And this is the real kicker. They're not just full of hot air. They're not just talk. They act. Every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. The ten brothers, far from abandoning Benjamin, return at great peril to vouch for him. You see what they're doing? They are living out the bonds of brotherhood that they'd shattered in the desert when they betrayed Joseph. What's changed? What's different? Judah, apparently. It's Judah who is in charge here, just like it's Judah who is in charge when the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, just like the Judah that you see on the front of your worship guide in the Rembrandt piece. So they come back to Joseph's house. And again, Judah steps forward to address their unrecognizable brother. Verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? How shall we clear ourselves? How shall we clear ourselves? Now, there's something in this verse that I don't want you to miss because it impacts the whole story of Jacob's sons. All the way back to Genesis 37. Right the way back to the beginning of this sermon series. You see, all along... We may have been thinking of these chapters as telling the story of Joseph. It now becomes clear that all along this has been the story of Jacob's two leading sons. Joseph and Judah. And here's what opens our eyes to this discovery. When Judah says, how can we clear ourselves? He's using a concept we've come across in another very important chapter where Judah pops up. And if you were here, you will remember it because we all had to endure having that incredibly awkward chapter read from this lectern. The word translated clear ourselves comes from the Hebrew tzedakah, which just means righteousness. And we've encountered that concept before back in the story of Judah and Tamar. And if you were here, you remember it being read. (laughs) Judah learns that Tamar's pregnant doesn't realize that it's by him yet. And he cruelly calls for her to be publicly burned alive. But Tamar has planned ahead, taking as a pledge Judah's staff, cord, and signet. When she sends those items to Judah, 
who, by the way, has now himself become a pledge for Benjamin. When she sends those items to Judah, she says, it was by the owner of these that I'm pregnant. And how does Judah respond? She is more righteous than I. If you felt that chapter 38 was a a bolt out of the clear blue and that it didn't belong in this story, suddenly you can see this is essential to this story because it was the turning point in Judah's life. The man you see on the cover of your worship guide in that Rembrandt piece with his money sack bulging with silver, the one kneeling down, that guy is a hard-hearted, money-hungry, pregnant woman burning brother slayer. The Judah that we meet in chapter 44 is like a totally new guy. I mean, he is a new guy. Tamar exposed the sinfulness of Judah's hatred of his favored brother, Joseph, and of his mother, Rachel, whom Jacob loved above Judah's own mother, Leah, who is that old wizened woman that you see on the left of the Rembrandt piece. How did she do it? How did did she expose this in Judah? She showed Judah that he was doing exactly what his father had done with him at Judah's expense. Judah was compromising the future of the family of the promise out of a selfish regard for his youngest and dearest son. In Judah's case, Shelah. Tamar held up a mirror to Judah and in it he saw the reflection of his father Jacob. But when we meet him here, Judah is, he's different. When he says, how can we clear ourselves? Literally, how can we show ourselves to be righteous? The story's returning to the theme of righteousness, which is bubbled up throughout Genesis. And the implied answer to that question at this moment is that righteousness looks like these brothers, the family of Israel, restoring the bonds of brotherhood, which a family history of favoritism had shattered. The solidarity of these 10, and this is really important, the solidarity of these 10 unfavored brothers under Judah's leadership is the expression of righteousness. It is the affirmation of the bonds of brotherhood in this moment that shows that these brothers are righteous. The most important thing is the future of the family of the promise. Now this speech that we took up most of this chapter in Genesis chapter 44, this is the moment that we've been tiptoeing towards throughout the whole book of Genesis. We've been inching here ever since Abraham's debate with God outside of Sodom, the place Jesus was talking about a few minutes ago in Genesis 18. In that story, God sees the wickedness of this city, Sodom, and he decides to wipe it out. It's so bad. It stinks so much. But Abraham, whose nephew Lot is in that city, is like, whoa, cowboy, hold on. You, you can't wipe out that city. There might be righteous people in it. Um, there could be 50 righteous people there. And God says, all right, for 50 righteous people, I'll spare it. And Abraham carries on. Well, What if there are only 45? God says, okay, if you can find them, I'll spare the the city. 40. If you can find 40, I'll spare it. 30? (laughs) If you can find 30, I'll spare it. And on and on it goes. 
And then Abraham gets to the lowest number he's going to reach, which is not just one. Suppose ten righteous men are found there. And God responds, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Why ten? Why not five? Why not just Lot? Because Abraham's conversation with God is meant to pose a question to which Judah and his brothers are the answer. Here, under Judah's leadership, we have the ten righteous men. But how? Righteous how? By restoring the bonds of brotherhood which their father's favoritism had shattered. By living as if the most important thing was the future of the family of God's people. The moving forward of God's plan to bless the nations and to rescue the world. And now righteous Judah, leader of the ten brothers, now shown to be righteous, has his shining moment in verse 35. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy, Benjamin, as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. The son of Leah lays his life on the line for the son of Rachel. Demonstrating repentance for his treacherous betrayal of Rachel's other son, Joseph. Judah, not Joseph, confesses his unrighteousness. This is so amazing. If you comb through all the pages of the book of Genesis, you will find one Man who acknowledges his unrighteousness. And his name is Judah. And it is, it's that repentance that establishes Judah and not Joseph as chief of the sons of Israel. Joseph is special in all sorts of ways. He has been favored by God. He has been raised to this position of prominence. But it is not through Joseph that God is going to carry on his rescue plan. It's through Judah. Think of Psalm 60. God says of Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, but Judah is my scepter. Or Revelation 5.5, where John weeps, right? Because there's nobody there who can open the scrolls. And what's he told? Weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered. It's from Judah, not Joseph, that the Redeemer comes. Because Judah reached back into his family history beyond the polygamy and the favoritism and the treachery to the gracious promise of the God of Abraham. He recovered the family story. And as a result, to use Jesus' words, the kingdom of God drew near. Do you want to see what the kingdom looks like when it draws near in your family? Look at Judah. He is the first to acknowledge that his life is broken and that he is, in his own words, unrighteous and that he needs a righteousness which he doesn't have, which is outside of him, which he can't generate. And it's that recognition of his inability to heal his own life that leads to the healing not only of of him, but also of his brothers. And look what happened when Judah repented. He and his nine wicked brothers 
became the ten righteous men through whom God would bless the nations rather than destroy them. If God can do that with them, he can do it with you and with your family. God's chosen instrument for all of Joseph's specialness. God's chosen instrument is not the dreamer. It's the repenter. It's from Judah that the hope for all repenters has come. The lion of the tribe of Judah who laid down his life that you might go free. It's just like Moana, right? Where the family story had gone wrong, Judah went right. But that came at a price for him. And it comes at a price for you and me too. Repentance feels like losing a pound of flesh. And the thing is, God wants so much more of you than just a pound. He wants all of you. But when you repent, God can begin to heal to heal you and through you patiently in his own time to heal your family too.